welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to another edition of Inside the Firm. I am Alex Gore, your Monday morning uh, coffee host. I am here with architect Ari Bose. Ari was a former director of IBI Group and helped transition that firm into a profitable uh, firm or department, and we'll get into that later. Um, and now he is part of the executive team at Blue Water, which is creating a network of architects, texture, and engineering companies that is focused on creating tech-forward design culture. They invest as co-partners with management teams that seek tech-driven innovation, unique domain experience, operational innovation, and flexible capital for growth. Ari, welcome inside the firm. Hi, Alex. Great to great to meet you. So that all sounds extremely uh, interesting uh, to me because I know I believe the same as you. With running a firm, there's people, projects, and profit, but and each one of those are very uh, difficult to get right, but essential to get right. But let's go even before your IBI uh, group experience. Can you tell us a little bit about your past that's relevant to what got you where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm an architect. I did my undergrad in, uh, in architecture back in India. Seems like a long time back. I shouldn't say it because it really aged me quickly here. Uh, oh, but <laughs> When did you graduate? <laughs> 2002. Oh, that's not too bad. Um, and then I, I did my master's, uh, at the university of Arizona. Mm. And, um, after that practiced architecture firstly in Phoenix, then, um, California, then moved to the middle East, uh, for a little bit. And then I've been in the Canada, in Canada for the little bit over a decade now. Um, so did, did you think you just didn't like all that sun and nice weather? So you might as well move to Canada. Is that what happened? Don't even get me there. It's it's called falling in love with your future wife. That's what ah, you're on the word. So that's fair. That's fair. Um, okay, let's backtrack a little bit then. Uh, talk about IBI Group, where you came in uh, to that firm, what that firm was about, and where you helped lead it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. I'm assuming you know a little bit. If not, IBI was one of the largest AE firms in North America. I say was in past tense because um, IBI got uh, acquired by Arcadis, which is a Dutch organization last year, actually 2022 now. Um, but uh, it was a very large firm, about 3,000 plus people. And um, I was IBI's client because I used to work for a contractor here in Canada for some time. And we used to do design build projects together. And um, I joined IBI to essentially grow their um, the, Can the Canadian East practice, uh, but specifically focused on collaborative design models. So let's say design rails, private public partnerships, and so on. And eventually I transitioned uh, from that role to leading the US East, and then finally um, all of US. Um, but IBI, and I'm not going to go into the legacy name, IBI essentially stood for intelligence buildings and infrastructure, which were our three large um, kind of sectors, let's say. 
and buildings being architecture and architecture and engineering uh, for buildings. And that was basically 55% of our business. Wow. And so, so that's what I led for that firm in the U S um, for about, oh, you know, I was, you know, it's, I don't want to project it as I was the only person leading, leading firms like this always is a, is a team effort and there's a group of leaders. So I was one of the leaders, but I was leading up the, as part of the leadership group and basically leading the buildings group in the U S in the buildings division, what type of buildings was, uh, IBI doing? Well, everything from master planning, I'll say not just buildings only. So everything from master planning, placemaking practice also formed a part of the buildings group, uh, all the way up to kind of um, large commercial buildings like, well, institutional buildings like courthouses. Uh, we, we obviously very large uh, high-rise multi-residential portfolio, very large K-12 through education portfolio, higher education, science and tech, healthcare, you name it, we did it all um, in terms of buildings. There's only so many very large companies like that, you know, um, HOK, Gensler, you know, like you can name, you know, there's a whole yeah. bunch. Of, yeah. um, so could you kind of walk me through, because I feel like it's interesting, a couple roles that you had there and what mm -hmm. the transition, because when you say, you know, what, and leading to maybe the end point is, when you're leading slash co-leading with multiple people, the building division, what what are you actually doing? What is your day-to-day? -day? It's very interesting. I mean, everybody looks at it very differently. I mean, um, I'll, I'll start by saying that whenever people look at leaders and talk to leaders and um, the word strategy comes up a lot. And I hate that word because most of the people who talk about strategy actually have well, I shouldn't generalize, but it would seem like everybody loves to use the word strategy, but strategy is ultimately nothing but a, um, but a set of hundred small little actions that have to come together to deploy that strategy. And so I would say that, you know, we were much more of a leadership group uh, where I would do everything from writing proposals to talking to clients, to running projects, talking to people. Um, and that's why we talk a lot about connection to profit ultimately comes to people because if you're really connected to people, you really understand what and uh, what kind of help they require. And you have to be ready as a leader to jump into the weeds and to help them with that and to solve their problem. So I did everything from, you know, <laughs> chasing large proposals, strategizing on large proposals, teaming on projects. I ran my own kind of large project myself i was doing a very large uh, leading up a very large um uh, so two million square feet uh, research and engineering complex for ford motor company in michigan and i was the lead architect on that project running a whole team we had almost 300 people working on that project um, so that was a job i was on while i was trying to do all these other things as a leader within the firm was there uh other people uh, kind of dedicated towards, um, let's just say, operations or overall, um, I'm sure that you had a, um, what's the word I'm looking for, a, a, a chief financial officer, a chief, a chief uh, operational officer, and how did they uh, interact with you in this sense of, because you have to balance profitability with like project execution okay. excellence. 
So I think I think we can talk about a couple of different things, and you're you're getting at something which was really fundamental to our success over the last five years at IBI that we were there, and that is something that we really focused on in our model at Blue Water. In fact, the next generation of it. So I'll touch upon that, but I think um, one thing you touched upon briefly was this idea of distributed leadership, uh, which is something fundamental to how I believe firms should run. Uh, too much of firms' information or resources are hoarded by certain individuals. There needs to be a sense of distributed leadership in most firms where people understand that there are other people. You have to trust them to be able to make mistakes and run jobs, and you cannot be in every meeting and so on. So that's one aspect of you know, when you said, oh, how do you do this if you're running a project while doing other things? So, so that's one. The other thing is... Um, about five years back, before the sale of IBI Group, um, our CEO um, came up with a new strategic plan. And the new strategic plan was to change IBI into a tech-driven design organization. And that fundamentally changed the way we operated. So, for, for example, we invested in three, four different things, but the fundamental cores of those things are what changed the practice. One is... Um, business intelligence. So you said, you know, CFO, are you working with CFO? Yes, but can you take the CFO and can you take the finance person out of the picture day to day? And can you run a business and get business intelligence? So what we developed was this really solid business intelligence platform, which was, you know, tied to metrics. We all understood people had visibility and transparency. And now we're building kind of the next generation of that platform at Blue Water, which is really taking business insight uh, to a different level and arming our architectural professionals with the financial tools and the financial know-how they know need about their business. Because most of the times you go to an architecture firm, you ask for any number, People are you know, churning out 10 Excel sheets and trying to do 25 different calculations. And by the time you're looking at that number, it's already outdated by three weeks because new timesheets have come in and new invoices have come in and so on. So, so that, was, that was one of the fundamental things that we used as a tool and leveraged it to really get a good idea of our business, even without our financial group. But in terms of our leadership, we had a three-pong leadership within the US. Um, there was a regional leadership and uh, somebody who had led the region in terms of profit and loss. And uh, they actually, his name is Todd. He is my co-founder here at Blue Water. Yeah. And so Todd led the region and he managed all three uh, sectors, I, B, and I, all the three <laughs> business lines in the U.S. While I managed the buildings and there was someone else who managed operations. And between the three of us, um, while I was largely focused on growth, um, Todd, Todd had his feet both in operations and growth, while the third person, you know, uh, Susan is her name, she's still there, um, she, she managed the operations of her business. So that's kind of how we, but then there's, you know, distributed leadership all across the practice and the entire region. We had about 800 people in the U.S., so just three leaders is is an unfair way to say we manage the business, but the three people provided strategic direction in terms of how and where we wanted to go. How did you, and how would you advise someone else um, to move up that corporate ladder? Because you you didn't you weren't plucked out of you know working in Toronto 
working for another firm and then immediately, or maybe you were immediately put at that high position. Was there a couple of steps and, and what did you do to move up those steps? Uh, important question. It's a very interesting question. I think, um, I've thought about it a lot myself. I think, you know, I never looked to get into these positions by myself. Like I never, there was never a job advertised for these. And it seemed like I always got these titles two years or a year after I had already been doing the role. That is not probably a painting or any organization good light, but that's just generally how it happens. But but can I, I stop you there? Because I think that people should rewind and hear that again. You can you can make the role you want to become if you take the responsibility for it and do it well. That's exactly it. That's what I was going to come to say that, you know, if you want to do something, go be the change in a way. And it sounds really idealistic, but that's uh, just a couple of things I did. I think, you know, I, I became a trusted resource to one of the top leaders and I didn't do it out of any intention. I just... You know, he could call me whenever he wanted, or if he knew that there was one person who would answer his call if he needed something urgently on any day, I would answer it, you know. And and it's not because I was looking for anything. It's just that's just my nature to jump in and, and go solve things whenever. What would <clears throat> what would they be looking for? What were they calling you for? Simple thing, like you know, one day I get a call and I'm not again saying that this should happen every day, but let's say they called in one day, you know, they called me on a Sunday in the morning yeah. and said, hey, I'm, we're in a, you know, in a bit of a trouble here because um, we have an RFP that's due tomorrow evening in Cyprus. And um, I've just reviewed the RFP and it's not written well. Um, and the fees are not in good shape. Can you, is there a way you could help us get this together? And so um, I said, sure. And I jump in and I realized that it's not just a little bit to fix. There's a lot to fix and just kind of take ownership and then um, go on from there. Um, so that's just one example. Um, there are several other examples. There are, um, that just automatically gets you invited into meetings where people are asking and questioning why you're in this meeting when everybody else is a director in the firm. And so, you know, that just, you know, one thing led to the other and eventually people questioning the leadership or me as to why I was in a meeting when there are other directors only in the meeting while I'm just an associate, uh, that didn't, that didn't bother me at all. It didn't, I mean, thankfully it didn't bother the, the actual ultimate leader yeah. and eventually people recognize you for who you are and your value and you get there. But, you know, it just, it happened in a, in a, certain way obviously you know when i started i was tasked with building a pipeline uh, business and in the first 18 months um we built close to 19 million dollars of fees in pipeline so you know the 18 months to get there were very nerve-wracking you know because you're always worried about the mandate you're taking up and what that could mean and there are days when you when you show up and you feel like nothing's going your way but you know <laughs> to stay at it <laughs> if someone was tasked to build a pipeline of work or if someone was listening and saying i might bring work on bringing in projects and making my own job literally from day one sitting down in your desk what do you start to do uh, there's two things um the first one is what my co-founder todd always says 
pick up the phone and talk to somebody, you'll learn something new. So it, whatever we do, pick up the phone, call up somebody, learn something new, whether it's a new project or you think, you know, somebody's advertising for a hospital, read the news, you know, obviously my mandate was very targeted towards design build and collaborative delivery projects and uh, private public partnerships. So I picked a direction that I obviously need to make a really good relationship with the contractors. So I, you know, I would just pick up the phone and call them and secure meetings and but you cannot walk into a meeting unprepared. I never walk into any meeting unprepared. My goal always is to walk into a meeting and I'm not saying I'll be the most learned, but I am prepared for the meeting. And it always helps to be prepared for the meeting, whether it means learning about that person, learning about the client. So that's, that's one thing. Um, the second thing is, it goes with the first thing, is what is called eat the frog. And eat the frog is, I, I really believe it in my, as a personal principle in life is do the thing that you least want to do first. So the most uncomfortable thing for most people is to actually pick up the phone and make a cold call to somebody and make an introduction. And I really made it a point to just come in every morning and do that. Like, you know, the first thing would be, these are the 10 people I need to call and hopefully one of them answers and I can have a conversation and go to lunch with them. So it doesn't need to be that one thing. Just figure out what your frog is and eat it. <laughs> it's yeah. Important. No, I, I love that. Um, when you're thinking about growth, <clears throat> there's growth in whatever um, area you're in, the Philadelphia area, the Denver area, um, and you can target those people. When you are either advising or maybe that you did this, but you work with other architecture firms to grow yeah. a new office, in a different location. What do you think the right steps are of how to do that? Meaning, because some people subsidize it, you know, um, and maybe that's the only way. Um, other people might want to get a project in there first. What's your kind of experience or, or at least advice in, in a branch office? Well, you have to think about why, why is somebody planning to open a branch office in the next location? That's a question for you so that I can get some more information. Yep. Oh, why? We yeah. want to we want to take our expertise and style to a uh, to a new market. Um, let's just say Dallas from from Denver to Dallas. Uh, yep. Okay. So um, it's interesting you you say that because we did a lot of work in that, and there's a little bit of um, understanding, at least the way I would go about it. Firstly, is understanding the major forces that play in the market. Right now, the major forces that play in the market determine the areas that you want to play in or how your market is being shaped. So for example, the major forces, large global forces that are shaping our market are, you know, immigration, uh, climate change, uh, you know, social justice, uh, digitization. Um, these are at least four. Fifth would be onshoring, reshoring, and everything that's going on right now with the Houthis and everything, that's going to affect again, what's going to happen with our onshoring and reshoring. All these are forces that are going to change the way our, our economy acts and behaves. And then you've got to look at some other things like, what is the market you want to play in? Okay, let's say higher education. Okay, so is higher education, what is the investment in higher education going to be? What kind of things? Now we're seeing a lot of higher education uh, investment in science and tech being in advanced materials, or climate change, so that you can see how they're starting to align with 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 those things. 
and then look at which states are spending the most per per pupil. So if somebody says, oh, go open it in Dallas, now Texas is a slightly different uh, animal, let's say. Um, if you were to say, go, well, go go spend it in Texas, and I would say, well, why Texas? The, the spending per pupil is the highest in California first. So why wouldn't we look at California? And so so there's there's this like stepwise process to look at why we would go through something and pursue something. And then we would look at local climate. What is the best way of doing something in the office? Is it the best thing to just go a branch office? And what does that look like? There's various several options, especially to large firms, whether you do an organic growth, whether you do you know acquisition, maybe there's a small existing player in the market. It's really hard to to, to um, grow something just organically. Maybe it's better to just acquire a small practice and then put a leader there. And then of course, there's other options like team takeouts where you just take a group of a principal or you know, a group of leadership. You know, it's, it's, I always believe that it's really hard to put just one person in a market and tell them that go shake it up. You know, you, you, need, to, you need to have a, a distinct group of people who can go move and shake something in a market. So. So that's kind of how I would look at, or we would look at how branch offices should be opened. Like there has to be a market behind supporting that thinking, not because I feel there's, let's go open a market in Dallas. And knowing a little bit even about the Dallas market and going, and I know you're not looking specifically sure. at Dallas, but I'm telling you for from my knowledge, you know, even Dallas and Houston are different. Like mm -hmm. if you had an oh, office- yes. Houston, you probably wouldn't be able to work in Dallas as easily. You know, I, I was just saying that even in the local market, you got to understand where it's better for your market to be, sure. whether it's in Dallas or Houston. And, you know, if you're in Dallas and you're intending to do work in Houston, you should know that you wouldn't be able to do that or it's going to be hard going because it's really tough competitive markets and you almost have to have a presence in Houston to work in Houston. Um, yeah. So things like that, you know. Have you found... Um... Or experience, and, and maybe this is a, a unfounded fear. You open up a branch office, mm -hmm. and let's say for a while you have to subsidize some of it, sending some of the work from let's just from Denver to Dallas, 100%. so that they get on their feet. But then in two and three years, let's say Dallas is is doing great. There's they're doing manufacturing there for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how do you look at finances of you know the different firms? And where is that money going? And is it being kicked to an upper corporation and distributing back down? How does that look? <laughs> so we we did a lot of work in that, and we do have a, I definitely have a working philosophy on that that worked really well. Um, and I think that firms who do this kind of profit center kind of, I have seen. I'll tell you the story first before I get into Perfect. an answer. Um, I, and this is for a major courthouse job that we won and we teamed with this partner and this partner told us a story about um, how they had looked at you know the principal of that firm she told me that they had looked to team with another firm and they got on a call with this another large national practice and their Chicago office gets on the call and the New York office gets on the call and uh, from that large firm while this firm was just looking at the partner and the principal in the New York practice and the principal in the Chicago practice start arguing as to who's going to be running the job. And that's 
and she was so turned off. They said, you're not our partner. We're going to go with IBI and I'm going to talk to Ari and, and the rest yeah. is history. But yeah. the, the reason I'm illustrating that story is that profit centers can lead to really complicated scenarios of how, like at least all pulling together in the same direction. So the, the best way to, um, I think, empower people or at least recognize is um, at three levels. One is profit as a whole. So that enables several different things. One is, if you look at profit as a whole, you may be in the Dallas office, which did really well, but you're in the Denver office. The office didn't do well, but you have two super performers. Now they're not gonna get a bonus because their office didn't do well, but you know they're great people in the office. So should they not be rewarded for some amazing work throughout the year? So so I think you have to look at profit at different levels. One is at the, you know, at the corporate level, one is at a regional level, and finally at the office level. And look at, and it's not it's not science, it's more art than science. But as a leadership group, you really have to look at all those three levels and then decide how to, how to kind of incentivize people. And then, so um, is it still though, is there a, basically a, what's the term? Um, you know how like all the chips that are made, all the different brands are actually owned by, let's say, Kroger or whoever, yeah. right? But then there's, you know, Doritos and stuff like that. So there's Denver and, and uh, uh, yeah. Dallas. Is it all separate books, but then it all goes to, uh, you know, th pass through up to one corporation? No, like I said, you have to recognize it at three different levels. So, you know, at an office level, maybe Dallas did. We did. We had this kind of scenario. We had a practice in Texas where they were doing 25% year over year in EBITDA. Yep. While we had a we had a practice in, in, in some other state which wasn't doing as well. And so we have to recognize that these are people here who are knocking it out of the park. And the problem with just taking everything up to the corporate level and not recognizing the local thing is yeah, what no, that's not I just meant um I, I just meant the the literally like the bank accounts and oh. the, you know like th that's what I meant. I obviously you need to reward people um, going for so. What about the bank account? I'm still a little bit unsure. What you're... Are are you having a uh, Dallas bank account and a Denver bank account and Dallas books and Denver books? I mean the bank accounts are based on the entities. So if your entity is Let's say your ex-architects is your corporate entity, but for da for Texas, your ex-architects Texas, and for Denver, your ex-architects Colorado, then your bank account entities are, are attached to those bank accounts. But ultimately, they're going to come up to ex-architects as a corporate entity. Gotcha. Um, yep, that was... Uh... But, but you're asking two different things. One is revenue versus cash, um, which is a completely different kind of... Um, it's a completely different, it's, it's, there's lots of firm, like how we recognize revenue in our business is, um, you know, I've seen so many different methods that it just, it just, it just, I find it mind boggling. <laughs> sure. Sure. Let's focus back on, uh, one thing that we talked about was, was creating profit when you're, yeah. let's just simplify it. You're looking in, into a firm. You're not, mm -hmm. we're not looking to branch around or anything like that. What are the, some of the levers that you found that really influence the profitability of a firm? 
I think the biggest the biggest expense for any architectural firm are salaries, right? Compensation. And we we like to look at where their compensation levels are. Compensation levels are one of the biggest kind of not to say people should be charged less, but uh, it, it's just compensation. We found that profitable firms, their compensation levels are somewhere between 60, 62% to, to 71%. Anywhere where the compensation level goes between, beyond, of the revenue, of the yep. revenue, okay. And anywhere that becomes more than that, like 75, 76, 77, we can see that the profitability starts going down. That might doesn't mean that the salaries are high. It may be that they're overstaffed. It may be that they're not charging enough. There's could be lots of different reasons to why that is. But that's a, that's one single metric which definitely tells us what what an issue could be. Um, but why the profitability? Because the operational costs ultimately fall between fifteen to twenty five percent. You know, based on how things go. Some are more profitable than others. Some are, you know, especially post-COVID, things have become a little bit more, um, I would say, that people are really considering realistic choices. People are really considering whether technology choices uh, become. So those things have started to change a little bit more. But that really affects your profitability. But I would say that the second is automation. We haven't talked about it at all, mm. but when we're talking about technology, we spend a huge amount of energy. And one of our things that Blue Water is doing is um, we really believe in automation. There's a lot of mundane tasks within architectural um, industry that we don't, that we don't like RFIs. How much time does it take for an RFI coming in every time somebody has to log it in, putting it in an Excel sheet? Or let's say you win a project, which is print from a proposal. Somebody is going in, creating a folder system with all these tasks can be automated. And we did automate it. And you can take at least two, two and a half percent out of your operational costs just by automating tasks like that. So things like that are definitely one or two different areas we can look at for profit to increase profitability. That's awesome. Um, going back to what you're talking about is is having information at, at your fingertip and creating an intelligent business system that everyone can use. Uh, and I'm sure that that's part of, of Blue Water a, as well. What does that look like for the day-to-day -day for just a, a, a project architect who has a team and then one of the team members on there? How are they interfacing with, with that information? I mean, generally, a lot, uh, quite a bit of that information is sensitive. So you don't want the whole firm to be to be able to have access to it. But you want the people who, so for us, it was everybody from basically the directors to the associates, right? And the senior associates. So in, in most firms, those are the people who can really impact, who can manage, and most of the project managers, I mean, project managers, we have a module separately for project managers. So they have access where they can only see the performance of their project. But we believe we can do that through their ERP system and doesn't necessarily has to go through the data intelligence platform because the data intelligence platform has the full uh, firm performance. Uh, but giving them those at their fingertips, it's really easy for them to be able to uh, access that information and extrapolate the information. There's a little bit of education required. People need to understand what numbers mean. Like what is a negative variance? And if you don't know what a negative variance is and how you can solve it and what might be causing it, there's no point in me just telling you your negative variance is two hundred thousand dollars. You know, okay. uh, what's a negative variance? <laughs> uh, a negative variance comes up when basically you don't have enough fee on the job. So let's say a contract hasn't been signed yet. Um, 
or the next part stage hasn't been authorized yet, but you're still working on the job and mm. charge fees to it. So there's no fees left to account for the time. Gotcha. That makes complete sense. Um, could you talk about uh, what type of firms Blue Water is, is looking at working with and what's kind of the difference after from their perspective with working with you? I mean, we have kind of two, three different things. One is, at least in terms of a value proposition and why we are different, we believe. Um, one is, you know, we are architects and engineers ourselves. We run an architectural engineering practice. So we bring what we believe is firm empathy. So a lot of firms that, especially private equity and so on, who invest in these businesses, they don't understand necessarily the business, right? There's a lot of financial engineering involved and all that, and that's what they're doing, but they don't necessarily understand the core of the business and how business operates. And so they really don't necessarily understand all the tools that are available to fix the business rather than just to chop and cut and sell and things like that. Mm -hmm. So so one is that we really understand how firms are. Second is this, like uh, the idea that we are not investing in firms and acquiring them 100%. We want co-ownership and co-partnership. So we want all these architectural firms and engineering firms to continue to maintain leadership and, in fact, grow new leaders through this process to ensure that they have skin in the game and they can bring, you know, generate their own value out of this growth. I mean, architects and engineers build the city around us, right? Like, I mean, mm. we're building it, but are often left out of the value creation process. So we believe that our model really will not only help them grow, but reap the benefits of their growth. And, and then tech and technology-driven processes that we'll bring will ultimately, you know, lead to much more profitable, easier, more efficient ways of working than how, you know, we're basically building, trying to build a platform, the next generation platform for architects and engineers. That's awesome. That's exciting. And that's the way it should be. Um, <clears throat> to, to wrap this up, um, any other uh, message you want to get out there? And if people want to reach out or learn more about what you do, where should they go? I mean, we are on the web, uh, www.bluewater.io. I mean, Blue Water, there's no E's in there. So it's B-L-U-W-A-T-R. Um, and my email is Ari, A-R-I, at bluewater.io. They can just reach out to me, drop me an email. Yeah, I mean, there's no bad questions. And um, it's a very highly controversial talk. I'll tell you, people are really... When you talk about firm transition and things like that, people coil up and don't want to talk about it. But it's a it's a real thing, and uh, there's absolutely we're open to a chat and having a conversation, learning more. If not anything, maybe we can we can help you um, or another firm to get better. Doesn't matter. And our interest is we're really passionate about the industry, uh, passionate about the profession as architects. We love great design. And and so that's kind of where where we wanna we wanna go, and hopefully their firms will find us valuable and and can engage with us. I think it's immensely valuable to have partners like yourself because uh, people build up firms, you know, through decades. Absolutely. And and they can be left with having a great career and yeah. having the salary while they made it, and that's great. But um, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, so if anyone's in that position, I, I recommend them reaching out to you. Absolutely. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate All right. It. Thank you for being inside the firm.